You may, you may know this already, but uh, 52% of all car accidents happen within five miles of home. 69% of all accidents happen within 10 miles of home. Some people would explain that by suggesting that, well, it's close to home. That's where you're in the car the most. Of course you're going to have the most accidents there. But there are others who suggest what you and I probably also know, and that is that if you become uh, comfortable and familiar with the drive home, you tend to start thinking about other things, and you tend to drive more mindlessly when you're close to home. One of the reasons that husbands and wives grow apart is that they become so familiar with one another that sooner or later they're bored in each other's presence. I imagine you could make the same kind of argument for the reasons that people walk away from their faith. They become so familiar with the routines and the customs, with the liturgies and all of the God talk, that they become bored by it. And becoming bored by it, they find themselves unable to really connect with God. Their, fam their familiarity becomes a barrier for their friendship with God. And for them, religion may be one way of being right in a world that's wrong, being in control in an out-of-control world. But their religion doesn't ever really transition for them to be about affection or about relationship, about awe or submission. If you recognize any of that in yourself or in others, you're really not the first ones. In Matthew chapter 13, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, we see Jesus return home. And when he returns home, people uh, recognize him for who he was <clears throat> when he was a child, more than who he is as a king. And so Jesus had just described his kingdom in terms of stories, ways of explaining what it was going to be like. And these people missed it because they were so familiar with Jesus. They felt they, knew, they felt they knew Jesus too well to treat him as their king. For them, familiarity breeds contempt. So let's look at Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where does this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? 
Where then did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So when Jesus returns to his hometown, we find that those people from his hometown could ask the right questions but not get the right answers. They could ask the right uh, question and somehow end up missing the right answer. Just because you are astonished and ask good questions doesn't mean you have faith. Because being confident in the source of Jesus' wisdom and power is essential for true belief. So the first thing we notice here is the setting. There is the setting of this um, encounter with the hometown crowd. In verse 53, Jesus finished the parables and went there and went away from there, coming to his hometown, taught in their synagogue, so they were astonished. So Jesus had finished the parables. The parables, you remember, were meant to clarify for us uh, what the kingdom would be like. And it was, they were meant to obscure the kingdom from those whose hearts were hard. If you have ears to hear, you got what Jesus wanted you to get. If you did not have ears to hear, you missed it. And that's why Jesus talked that way. And so really what Matthew is doing in, in following, this, um, following the parables up with this story is reminding us there will be people who miss what Jesus has to say. Jesus was by the sea. He had now gone up to his hometown, which we um, probably refers to Nazareth, where he grew up, where his father had a carpenter shop, where they knew his family. And they would have known what Jesus was like. He went into their synagogues and taught. That was the way that Jesus uh, went. He would go to the synagogues, teach the, the real uh, fulfillment of the Old Testament as he would talk. And everybody uniformly was surprised and astonished at the teaching of Jesus. We're told elsewhere that he taught with authority, not like the scribes and not like what people were used to. And the teaching was astonishing enough that people were prompted to find the explanation for why he could teach like that. The message of Jesus was so extraordinary that they were forced to ask the questions that follow. And so the questions come in verses 54 through 56. Uh, there is a series of questions that really do give us kind of the impact of uh, the authority and the, the astonishment that Jesus brought with him. Now I'm just going to stop right here and say that I think it's wonderful that Jesus astonished them with his teaching. Uh, I'm just going to say... I. I come from a little town a long ways from here. 
probably about the size of Nazareth. And I have long dreamed of going back there and dazzling the hometown folk. Right? Going back and, and having them say, oh, have you seen Scott? What an amazing transformation. But I stand before you to tell you that has not happened, nor am I ever hopeful that it will. But it did for Jesus, so much so they didn't get him. They had to ask questions like, why? Why does he come up with this now? We've not, we did not see this coming. Where, this question number one, verse 54, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works. He is amazing, but we don't think he should be. Where did he get this? They had to account for two things, for his wisdom and for his mighty works. And I think it's worth stopping here before I go any farther just, just to say that they wanted to account for his wisdom, his teaching, and his mighty works. And there is, it is likely that you will run into a skeptic one day. Maybe you're even here as a skeptic, I don't know. But you will run into a skeptic who will want to say, there's nothing special about Jesus. There's nothing supernatural to see here. It's probably worth noticing that here we run into skeptics. The people in his hometown, it, says, it tells us later, that they were offended by him. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Yet, they had to admit there is something unique about his teaching. And they had to admit there's something supernatural about the way he goes through the world. That even in their attempt to dismiss Jesus, they did not dismiss his teaching nor his miracles. And so, if you run into people that say, oh, well, he couldn't have. He couldn't have done that because that's miraculous. He couldn't have done that because that's supernatural. Even the people who didn't believe him, you might say even waved the white flag and said, He's doing something that we have to account for somehow because it's supernatural and it's unusual. It's fair to say that the wisdom of Jesus and his power have been at the center of controversy throughout history. You might say, well, when, when somebody goes to universities, they're going to get hard questions. So won't be the first hard questions ever asked of a follower of Jesus. In fact, even as early as the, the letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You did notice, right? That Christ, 
himself in the flesh is the power of God and the wisdom of God, the very things the hometown folks were trying to account for. Where does he get the wisdom? Where does he get the power? And so they're asking this question. That has been the question throughout history. Where does Jesus come up with this teaching? Where does Jesus come up with this miraculous power? Well, that's the first question. The second question uh, explains why they asked the first question. And really, the second question, I'm lumping the next four into the second question, so I'm cheating. This is a question set of four questions. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't he Mary's son? Don't we know the names of his brothers? And aren't his sisters here among us? In other words, the question is, this family, this family, we know this family. How can somebody extraordinary come from an ordinary family like this? Now, I admitted to you my fantasy of going back to my hometown, right? And dazzling them. I'll tell you the first thing that they would say. We know his family. How could he do anything special coming from a family like this? That really is the way that they were interacting with Jesus. We know those knuckleheads who were his brothers. If we, I mean, he was just like them, right? What's going on here? We don't understand how he can have this power, how he can have this wisdom. In other words, this just drips, doesn't it, with ordinariness. It's so ordinary. That's the problem. Jesus' family is so ordinary. How could something extraordinary come from something so ordinary? How can, this sup how can something supernatural come from something as natural as this carpenter's son? I think there's many of us that would make the same kind of argument about our own personal experience, wouldn't we? I mean, maybe you had an experience where you came to faith in Jesus. You, you saw it clearly for the first time. And what did you expect? Fireworks, you know, big flood of emotion, some extraordinary thing. Maybe the earth would start shaking. But it just seemed so ordinary. It seemed that once it was dark and now it's light and that's all there was to it. That's the problem that they had with Jesus. It didn't seem extraordinary. And so they said, well, we know, we know his family and what can come from a family like that. Now, it's important that you see, I think, a little bit of structure here. At the, at the end of chapter 12, if you look back in your Bibles at chapter 12, there was an interaction with Jesus' family that kind of started the explanation of the kingdom. They said, hey, your mother and brothers are here. And so there was this interaction with Jesus' family, which then prompted Jesus to explain what he's doing in the world. I'm here to start a kingdom. It's going to be like a mustard seed. You might not even see it. 
but someday it's going to grow big. I'm going to, it's going to be like leaven, which will be invisible, but it will make its way all the way through. It's going to be like a treasure hidden in a field that's worth trading everything for. It's going to be like the pearl of great price. Jesus explains all that, and then what happened? His family shows up again. There's this intersection between the, the kingdom and the, the extraordinary nature of what God is doing in the world and throughout history and the ordinariness of the family of Mary and Joseph. And it's as though the ordinariness obscures what really is going on with the kingdom of heaven. I just want to encourage you that you need to not be deceived because something seems ordinary. In fact, when you see Jesus for who He is, the King of kings, the King of this heavenly kingdom, God Himself come in human form, it may not be dramatic for you, but that doesn't make it less extraordinary. Something supernatural and spiritual is happening whether or not it meets some external criteria that you set up. And so, because they know his family and the ordinariness of his family, they ask a third question. And the third question really is very similar to the first. Where did this man get all these things? Where did he get this wisdom and this supernatural the supernatural power. They ask, the, they ask the source question, which really is the right question. So they might be skeptics, but you need to know they're asking the right question. Where did Jesus get this power? Where did Jesus get this wisdom? It could not have come from his family. I think as Matthew is writing this account of the life of Jesus for us, he's just saying, I've already told you. I've already said where Jesus gets this teaching and where Jesus gets this power. I've already told you. And he probably would say, go back to the, go back to the start. I've already said, go back to Christmas. Because the birth of Jesus is enough to explain the miraculous power and the teaching, isn't it? In chapter 1 of Matthew, what does he do? He tells us the story of an um, angel coming to Joseph and saying, you're going to have a son, you're going to call him Jesus. Um, and little problem, your wife's going to be pregnant, but you know, don't let that bother you. Because it's from the Holy Spirit. In other words, there is from the Holy Spirit this unique child born of a woman conceived by God Himself. This unique God-man is coming. Matthew tells us that. 
He makes it clear not only that, but say, you, you'll call his name Jesus, he'll save his people from his sins, and he'll be called Emmanuel. God with us. That's where he gets it. He's not just an ordinary guy from Nazareth. He's God with us. You're asking the right question. You're ignoring the right answer. That God with us is the way that he gets this teaching and gets these powers. In fact, we don't think of the gospel of John as having a Christmas story so much, but when, when uh, John writes his gospel at the very beginning, he tells us what is up with this child. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. You want to ask the right question? Where did He get this wisdom? Where did He get this power? Well, the Word was God. That's where he got the power. The source question is the most important question when it comes to Jesus. You must come to grips with the fact that he is unique in all of human history. And if you do, you're on the right track. If you ignore it, if you dismiss it, you will never get the truth about Jesus. Well, sadly, that's what happened here, isn't it? Look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. That he would come back to his hometown and dazzle them, they found offensive. The problem was really not that they knew the family of Jesus. The problem was not really that they went to the same high school. The problem really was that they used those things as a reason to dismiss the wisdom and power of God. They avoided the claims that Jesus had just made that he was a king by looking back at when he was a kid. The problem is they were too familiar with Jesus to commit themselves to him. It says they took offense at him. The, the, the word offense comes from the same root word as stumbling block. And you probably heard throughout the, throughout the New Testament, uh, the, the writers routinely say that Jesus became the chief cornerstone or the head of the corner, but to those who reject him, he became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He became that for these folks, too. They weren't religious leaders. They were just a little too familiar with Jesus for their own good. And so you have to admit, and I have to admit, it's probably an occupational hazard, really, of being a pastor, if there ever was one, that familiarity can keep you from seeing, or worse yet, keeps you from looking at the wisdom and power of Jesus. 
familiarity seems like the most benign reason ever to stumble at Jesus. Yet it claims victim after victim. To be bored with Jesus is the most heartbreaking reason to refuse him that I can imagine. So many religious people mistake being familiar with Jesus for truly knowing Jesus. I would say if there is a problem with the American church, it's that they're familiar with Jesus, but they really don't know who Jesus is, just like he was from their hometown. We know enough about Jesus, really, to be dangerous to ourselves. It's as though there's enough of this um, Jesus that we can inoculate ourselves with just a little bit so that we don't truly get the disease. You... um, may recognize that I don't tell many jokes from the pulpit, and uh, it's probably in everyone's best interest. But I do have a couple jokes that usually work outside the pulpit. One, and, and this comes up all too often, is about pastors working only one hour a week on Sunday. The other one that generally works is some variation on people falling asleep in church. Now, I do think that probably in all fairness, we've all wrestled with that. Some of you are wrestling with that this very moment. But I think it's so possible, isn't it, to be comfortable with the eternal that we can't possibly accept it. That in fact, it's easy to be bored with the kinds of things you hear over and over and over. That this king of this heavenly kingdom is somebody that you could possibly be bored with is really the greatest of all offenses to him. To yawn at eternity is an indication that eternal life probably remains outside your grasp. Certainly, familiarity with Jesus can poison your faith. And familiarity kept them from knowing and appreciating Jesus. The earliest, I think the earliest proverb that I probably ever learned uh, was simply familiarity breeds contempt. And it probably had to do with um, my dad's um, background in the military and the way that they ran um, sort of the hierarchy there. But that's what happens. It's what happens when you're driving. And you have accidents close to home. It's what happens in marriages. It's what happens in religion. And it's what happened here with Jesus. Familiarity kept them from knowing the 
king of kings. You'll notice the last phrase says that Jesus did not do many works in that place because of their unbelief. It's important that you know that your faith neither causes nor limits God's mighty work. God is completely free apart from whether you trust Him or not. Yet, it's probably safe to say that He does work in response to faith and that there is a correlation between trusting Him and having Him come through. And here, they were unwilling to believe in Him or unwilling to trust Him. And so guess what? It looked boring to them. He didn't do much because they didn't trust him much. Well, I have to say that this is probably worst. That it's probably worse this time of year because at Christmas everyone has just enough of Jesus to have some warm family tradition with hot cocoa and a Christmas tree and a fire in the fireplace but not enough of Jesus to inspire awe that God would come to earth in the flesh. I mean, we really do want just enough of Jesus to be comfortable with, but not so much that it would shake up our world or make us alter our course in life. I think it's worse this time of year because Jesus as a baby is much safer than Jesus as king. Jesus in a manger is much easier to deal with than Jesus on a cross. So it's easy for us to say, like they did in his hometown, right? I knew him when he was a kid. It's not that big a deal. When in fact, It is a big deal that Jesus would come undetected, humble, God Himself in extreme poverty that He might make the world rich. And so we're reminded that Jesus' family, well, we're reminded by the reference to Jesus' family, that there are all kinds of ways to put Jesus off and to dismiss Jesus. One of them is familiarity. One of them is that we've heard it so much, we're bored by it. We've heard it so much, we don't really care anymore. But you need to realize that there is a king who's establishing a kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven is like a sower It's like a field, it's like a treasure, it's like a net, it's like a pearl of great price. And the question is, really, do you see it that way? Or have you constructed a version of Jesus like the people in his hometown did? A version of Jesus that isn't worth trading everything for. You see, that's really what's we're coming to grips with here. Jesus said, there's a treasure hidden in a field. For joy, go sell everything you have and trade for it. 
The people in the hometown said, I don't think so, excuse me. Do you have a version of Jesus like that? That makes you yawn and look elsewhere for excitement? Or do you see Jesus for who for whom he said he is, the king of the kingdom. Where one day, life will be completely different. And he will establish his reign. And every tear will be wiped away. See, that version of Jesus, the one that Matthew is telling us about, is worth exchanging everything for. I think that you can be so familiar with your own version of Jesus that you miss the real Jesus. And you won't really understand why. You have to get to the root of His wisdom and His power. But you must. You must come to grips with who this Jesus is and why is He wise? Why does He have this teaching and why is He powerful? And it all boils down to the central truth of Christmas. That Jesus is this unique God-man. Come to earth that God and humans can be reconciled. He is uniquely qualified as the king of the kingdom of heaven. So this Christmas, this morning, the question for you and the question for me is simply, will you submit to him as king of kings or will you pass him off as somebody you've heard of or somebody that you know too well? or someone you're too familiar with. May God help us not be too familiar with Jesus to really trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank You that Jesus is unique in all of history. That He is uniquely qualified to be the king of the kingdom of heaven. That everything that stands between you and me has been taken away and made right by this king. Oh, Father, don't let me miss him because I dabble so frequently in religious things. Will you keep us this Christmas from being too familiar with a baby in a manger to see a reigning king with an empty tomb. So, Father, we praise you for all that you've done uh, throughout history in, in the world through Jesus. We praise you for what you, what you will do for us because of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.